0: the biggest global risks out there right now? You might be surprised at some of them. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Zurich Insurance Group is not only one of the world's largest commercial property and casualty insurers, it's also the author of an annual Global Risk Report, which it issues in connection with the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The report looks at every imaginable risk that might impact countries, companies, and supply chains. The 2015 report examines 28 separate risks in five categories, environmental, economic, political, societal, and technological, and details 13 major trends that are affecting those areas. Today, I'm speaking with Linda Conrad, Director of Strategic Business Risk for Zurich, who's going to talk about the findings of the report and highlight some of the biggest risks that are affecting both developed and developing countries today, including some that we might not have thought were major issues. She also talks about what global businesses need to do now in order to mitigate their exposure to these risks, even if most of them are beyond their ability to head off. So here is my conversation with Linda Conrad. Linda Conrad, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Start out, please, by telling me a little bit about the Global Risk Report that Zurich puts out. Uh, What's the history of that report?
1: That's a great question. The the Global Risk Report is something that is published just weeks before the World Economic Forum, which happens once a year in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, And we work together with some partners, including um, Wharton and Marshall McClellan and others, uh, to produce a report that helps look at what are the largest issues that may be facing us as, as a globe, uh, as corporations, and as individuals um, going forward from this year and looking out uh, about 10 years.
0: So what is the use of the report afterwards? Is it in any way, is there a direct link between the report and actual insurance rates, or is it more of an informational thing for the industry?
1: Well, we certainly hope, um, the report goes back about 10 years now, so we've got a, a little bit of history and we can actually kind of look at trends in global risks and and how they've been impacting us. Uh, So as this marks a decade of highlighting these risks, uh, we we think that there uh, should be an indication of things like um, where there's been increased uh, fragility and instability in certain risks, where we see interconnections between risks and, and cascading effects, and all of those things Uh, are certainly items that, as a risk manager, um, looking at insurance, managing overall corporate risk as the CFO, the CEO, you should be concerned uh, at what things could be impacting the uh, the risk profile of your company and ultimately uh, may impact your ability to be profitable.
0: Yeah, it's especially interesting in the way you look at the interconnectedness between various risks and, risks and trends, so it creates a very sophisticated portrait of the world out there. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, I just want to ask you to kind of give me an over, overall kind of broad view of what are some of the most significant risks uh, that came out of this 2015 report. I know that there are 10 uh, that you sort of put right up front. Could we, could we talk about number one?
1: We sure will. And let me first give you a little bit of background. Um, So the report looks at 28 different risks, and it's divided into five categories. So these risk categories include environmental, economic, political, societal, and technological. Um, And this year we're starting to look at uh, also 13 trends, uh, which, again, I think is an important thing to look at, Uh, as well as um, for the first time ever we're focusing a little bit on what can we do about it, which is really what we all care about. Um, so not only looking at those things of highest concern over the 18-month time frame, but trying to look out 10 years to allow us enough uh, time to have some insights on preparedness um, you know, at a, a regional or corporate level to allow us to do something about it. Uh, how, do you so- dis-
0: how do you distinguish trends from risks? I mean, in past uh, reports, you might not have addressed them specifically, but I'm sure you had to come up. In order to assess what the risks were in past reports, you had to discuss trends.
1: Certainly. So if you compare year over year, you can, you can make some pretty good um, uh, insights into uh, what the trends are. So, for example, in this year's report, we look at what were the, the largest movers from year to year. So how are uh, people perceiving the change in risk uh, from last year until this year? Uh, and one thing that's uh, to get to your question about the number one risk this year, we saw something that we haven't seen in the past years at the top of the list, and that's geopolitical risk. Um, probably no surprise that that's high on people's minds, uh, given the you know recent disputes and things going on with ISIS, etc.
0: That that is number one, then geopolitical risk.
1: Geopolitical risk, and in particular, um, the interplay between geopolitical and economic risks.
0: That's a very very complex portrait.
1: It certainly is, and we see this um, kind of interstate conflicts. Um, that have both regional and global consequences, um, as really the, the biggest, uh, winner this year (laughs) in the report. We see at the same time some of the, the usual suspects, um, water crisis, climate change, extreme weather, health related risks, and, uh, something near and dear to my heart is, you know, global trade and, and supply chain, which as it turns out, many of these risks actually will impact, uh, the supply chain, um, including infrastructure, exposures, and some other things that came out this year.
0: Well, just to be clear, all those things you just mentioned, does that all get wrapped up into what you call geopolitical risk?
1: Geopolitical is something specific uh, in that it has to do with uh, more location-based, so as we know in in global trade, where you have business partners, where you sell, where you supply from, where you may have a sales organization, all those decisions are often included in uh, when you're looking at which country to invest in. you want to have the appropriate risk reward and but part of that risk may be a higher level of Geopolitical exposure.
0: Had you looked at that same type of risk in the previous reports, is there kind of an apples to apples comparison that would say whether you believe certain geopolitical risks have become heightened?
1: Um, there is certainly. It's always been on within the 28 risks that we looked at. Um, interstate conflict was there, but you know it's probably no surprise that uh, in the period from 2007 to 2014, really the economic risks dominated, um, with the the risk of asset price collapse. You know, heading. Uh, in the run-up to the financial crisis, uh, that, that major systemic financial failure has been on everyone's mind.
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, the 10 global risks of highest concern in 2014, as, re- as included in the executive summary, lists fiscal crises in key economies as number one. Was that the previous report right, that or was, was that, the, that the previous report? report?
1: and And I think that that sits well with what's happened in the last few years since two thousand and seven that that would be top of mind but now in the, in the past year we saw this you know that the political activity and all of the interstate conflicts has really uh been in the news a lot lately uh, and so we weren't terribly surprised to see that taking um you know a top um position as one of the kind of the key movers so four of the top five of interstate conflict taking the top spot there's things ongoing concern about things like uh, unemployment that was in last year's report, too, and all of those um, unemployment obviously factors into uh, political instability as well.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the fiscal crisis aspect of it probably stemmed largely from what was going on in the European Union. Uh, oh, correct, the, the European Union year,
1: right? as, and also in you the know, United States where we saw the, the um, asset bubble issues and, of course, the credit default uh, problems that led up to this recent recession. That was really top of mind.
0: And while in the United States, it seems like the economy is improving, certainly we do not draw any hope from what's going on in the Eurozone and the EU right now. I that that is correct. And, and
1: interesting you should mention that is that the report does lay out what are the key uh, top three risks by, uh, by geographic region. Uh, and so in North America, we find actually the failure of critical infrastructure is one of the top three, large-scale cyber attacks and failure of climate change adaptation, you know, in the, the heels of the Superstorm Sandy, for example, are the top three in North America, whereas Europe, which you mentioned, um, we see structural unemployment or under unemployment, um, large-scale involuntary migration, and profound social instability as the top three. So really, nothing in common between North America and Europe, which is, is interesting.
0: That is interesting. And it is also interesting how much time you spend on infrastructure issues in this report in the United States. You really do drill down to the inability or the unwillingness of our political system to enact ways of paying for all of this new maintenance and repair that's required to to make our system uh, secure. It's true. Um,
1: Infrastructure, I think we've paid a lot of attention to that. Um, And uh, Zurich, in particular, has done a lot of uh, work. We've produced some reports. uh, And we've also even agreed as a company that we're going to kind of walk the talk and make some investments in long-term infrastructure because we think it's so important to the future economic growth uh, of, you know, developing countries that we have an infrastructure that we can rely on and support, you know, um, global trade and commerce. Um, On the developing side, we see that uh, there may be insufficient infrastructure. So there's a uh, a dual challenge. in developed nations, we see aging infrastructure that's at fifty to sixty years old in some cases. and in developing countries, uh, often the infrastructure is not in place to encourage um, companies to make those investments uh, that that are so needed to help them uh, get greater GDP growth.
0: You do offer a little bit of a ray of hope in the form of mentioning these public-private partnerships that might help to, to create the necessary infrastructure. But on the whole, it sounds fairly pessimistic in terms of your assessment of the infrastructure situation in the United States, especially, of course, I'm sure you were thinking about as we lead up to a presidential election and a lame-duck lame duck president. There's probably very little possibility that 2015 will see any great progress in infrastructure funding well, I, uh, I and in development. not well, right?
1: I guess – Traditionally, we would, might be able to say that from the political situation, right, with Lane Druck. But uh, I, I can't comment on the political situation that may come forward. But I can tell you that in the, the U.S., we rank 23rd in terms of infrastructure safety, uh, which is really unacceptable for a country of our size. Um, we see that uh, on average about one in nine bridges are deemed at an 80% safety rate. And You know, I wouldn't get on a plane that was 80% safe. So we really have some <laughs> interesting challenges going forward um, in the U.S. here. We see that roads obviously are one of the uh, major forms for trucking, of course, uh, and the road repairs are largely fueled by a fuel tax, no pun intended, but they're you know supported by fuel tax, which has been uh, decreasing in revenue of late because of the efficiency of cars, which is a great thing. We're using less gas, but it also means we get less fuel tax uh, and people are, are driving less. You know They're trying to use more mass transit, which is also good from a climate perspective and a, a usage perspective. But again, it means we don't get the funds that we need to help do those infrastructure repairs. We also see issues on the, the port side, where not only are um sometimes the the new ships that are being built are so large that there's only a few ports that can accommodate them and there really isn't necessarily the funding in the uh in the budget to expand the port, uh nor may there be uh sufficient, you know, roads and, and rail support once things are off late loaded. So, you know, the uh, both the inland waterways and the offload um, on land transport uh, may not be sufficient to handle the increase in, uh, in volume that we're starting to see.
0: I wonder also when you were preparing this report, I doubt very much that you or anybody for that matter could foresee the state of affairs would be at right now with regard to West Coast port congestion and the labor problems. I mean, was that included in your risk report or did that just well, kind of I mean, catch it's, everybody that, that, by surprise?
1: There's been a long term issue with, uh, you know, ports and, and strikes. Um, so it didn't take us entirely by surprise, and this report doesn't get that specific to go by location. Uh, but certainly, one thing that's interesting from an insurance perspective is a lot of times people think of getting insurance for kind of physical issues. So they're, if you're thinking of your own building or a supplier's building that you want to insure against, let's say, a fire, for example, and that kind of physical damage that could happen. But actually, Zurich has been maintaining a disruption database now for about 12 years um, of uh, keeping track of Uh, events that have happened around the world in different industries, and really tracking what the causes are, uh, which is really interesting because it tends to be not necessarily those things that are related to physical damage. So natural catastrophes, which is often front of mind, comes in at at number four. Um, But there's, you know, three things in front of that, including strikes, accidents, production problems. We see regulatory issues um, coming to the forefront and even Uh, About 50% of the disruptions last year were caused by cyber issues. So talk about that interconnectivity, right, that we see it.
0: Yeah, also we talk so much about these so-called acts of God as if human beings were helpless and didn't have that much of an impact on the risk uh, situation, but those others that you mentioned are all basically human-created type risks.
1: That's right. And even the things that that may be quote-unquote acts of God, there are certain things that, you know, companies may be able to do to, a, better understand where they may have exposures and then take some steps to mitigate. So, you know, Zurich is a big proponent of uh, doing some analysis up front, whether it's modeling what potential scenarios could lead to a business interruption or helping put in place a continuity plan, you know, backup suppliers and production facilities. Now, all keeping in mind that, you know, we, we, we can't just uh, go out and build a, a new factory and have it sitting there. We, we realize that. But there's certainly a lot of uh, analysis, and and steps that we can take up front to kind of um, better prepare our companies and and hopefully prevent uh, a large-scale issue from happening.
0: It's interesting that you approach the matter of risk from the standpoint of two different timeframes, an 18-month versus a 10-year time frame, and I'm wondering how the risk portrait differs when you're looking at those two different things, like what are the most important risks in the short term versus what are the most important risks in the long term? Are there major differences there?
1: There, there are some differences. So um, looking at the 10-year horizon, more structural concerns stand out. So those related to resource um, uh, allocation. Um, in other words, societal and environmental risks, such as food, water, climate change, and extreme weather really rise to the top. Whereas in the shorter term, you know, we see things a little more, the 18-month the time frame is a little more um, kind of operational um, in nature. Things like, again, interstate collapse that I mentioned came up on the 18-month period. We see social instability, large-scale cyber attacks and terrorist attacks uh, in more in the 18-month time frame.
0: Is there anything in the new report that surprised you or was in any way unexpected?
1: Uh, that surprised me. I think all of these uh, these issues have really been on the, the forefront. Um, it's just a matter of which one is taking the highest place on a given year. One thing that has come up this year is actually number two. I mentioned number one over the coming decade is the accelerated interplay between politics and economics, where we see... Um, in, this increasing. Uh, increasingly that countries are making greater use of economic levers to achieve national or political advantage, and this could really have impact on go- global growth uh, that's already kind of fragile. Number two in, in the top three for the coming decade was the consequence of rapid and um, unplanned urbanization, and I think that uh, is something that we haven't seen as much in the past. So uh, these are really impact a couple of different areas on the, on the city front. Um, number one, uh, obviously cities and health comes to the forefront because the, the more people you put together, uh, the more chance of spread of infectious disease as well as kind of stress-related and non, non-chronic things. But the, the statistics are huge when we look at urbanization. In uh, Going back to the 1950s, only a third of the world's population lived in cities. Today that's about a half, so fifty-four percent are about three point seven billion people. But by twenty fifty, city dwellers will account for more than two thirds of the world's population or over six billion people. And that rise will be particularly evident in developing countries uh like Africa, where we expect it to go over fifty in, percent in the coming years, and sixty-four percent in in Asia. Um so it's interesting when we think about that, as I mentioned cities and health, but when we think about cities and climate change, Fifteen of the largest cities, uh, being over 10 million or more, 15 of the 20 largest cities are by the water. So what does this mean for, you know, uh, as, uh, climate change or natural disasters? For example, in Manhattan, it, there's, you know, we realized what happened in Superstorm Sandy, right? That was a, a very evident case of a city uh, underwater and the, the tragedy that came after that. So there's some obvious issues coming out of urbanization. So two other things in addition uh is the infrastructure discussion that we talked about earlier can cities expand and cope with an increasing number of people you know from the you know transportation side from the the housing side bridges etc and then finally um, on the urbanization is the the question of social instability particularly in developing countries there's an increase in you know urban violence and social unrest where there may be large numbers of unemployed or underemployed youth that gather in cities um, coupled with higher cost of living, housing that's not affordable, and food prices which are going up. And we actually see that it, that, that cities become really ripe for this type of uh, issue, as we saw in Arab Spring, which you know, manifested itself in a political uprising. But the root of that was actually food prices had been going up and there were a lot of uh, young unemployed uh, folks around that ended up demonstrating uh, and we all remember the implications of that from uh, you know a political and and um, supply chain perspective. So the conclusion was that the, really the city's government uh, needs to really step up uh, in conjunction with national and international bodies to start to address this and head on before the population does move into the city and, and uh, we get to a crisis state.
0: Where are the biggest pressures of urbanization in the shorter term? I know you mentioned Africa as that might be a longer-term play, but right now, in the in just in the next few years, where do you see that happening?
1: So, uh, you know, clearly the um, large global cities are already feeling that. But as I mentioned, Africa and Asia will really uh, probably take the brunt of that. So, going forward, as I mentioned that they expect in Asia to see you know significant numbers of people. Uh, the, so, the developing nations of Asia and Africa will see the largest rise. So by 2050, we're expecting Africa to go from 40% today to 56%. And in Asia, we expect it to go from 48% to 64%. So some pretty large growth in those um, developing countries' areas.
0: Also, the people aspect. In the past, you've referred to what you to what you call generation lost, uh, generation coming of age, facing high unemployment and precarious job situations. Does that continue to be a big concern?
1: Absolutely. So the uh, you know under un or underemployment uh, is a major factor in this report, and and we see it having links to things like political instability and and rise in, uh, you know in conflict, as we mentioned before. We think that uh, as the economies are under increasing pressure in urbanization, as I mentioned, the social instability factor is really a big issue as well. So I wanted, to, I wanted to just to finish with the third risk there that we mentioned. Number one over the coming decade is the accelerated interplay between politics and economics. And number two for risks in focus was that consequence of urbanization. And number three is the potential misuse of emerging technologies. And I think that's where it really gets interesting when we look out longer term. Um, so we're talking about things like um, synthetic biology and nanotechnology, artificial intelligence. You know, we've, drones, we've heard a lot about drones lately, right? That would be an example uh, of some of these products and, and how they may um, have a bigger impact on the business front as more companies are starting to get into that. But it also could have some hazards or, or um, questions around, Human health, environmental potential damage, you know, are there legal and ethical questions, etc. Um, all tied in with these amplifiers of you know the pace of innovation around these things is just incredible. The, the technology advances in short term are are moving at an increasingly rapid pace, and frankly, there's not a lot of governance in place around them. So this. Um, you know, could lead to some undesired consequences. Um, it also leads to lots of benefits, as we know. There's a lot of, you know, health benefits that have come out of it as as well. So I, I don't want to paint an entirely negative picture. Um, but in order to capitalize on those potential benefits, we do need to have, uh, you know, some folks looking at it now from a kind of governance, legal, and ethical perspective to make sure that we go forward with our eyes wide open. I mean, we can't You can't manage what you can't see. So it's great that this report brings a lot of these issues to the forefront and get frankly gets people having a conversation around what can we do now.
0: What an interesting issue to to inject into the risk discussion. You don't see that in most in most some other, other reports on this subject. So it's great that you brought that up. We're close to being out of time, but I just want to ask you finally what can companies do with this report or what should they be doing with this, with this report, which seems a little overwhelming in its scope and in all the different dangers out there. I'm just wondering in terms of a from a supply chain perspective, there's been this philosophical difference between whether you should prepare your supply chain for very specific types of incidents like tsunamis or floods or... Port strikes or something versus creating these agile supply chains that somehow are just able to react to anything that comes down the pike. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for companies as to how they can best use your report to shore up and make more resilient their own supply chains. It's
1: an excellent question. And, and, and probably the answer is yes and yes, a little bit of both. Um, there are certain things that, that we know historically will happen to supply chains. We know that there will be natural catastrophes. So, you know, making sure that you don't have... Too much of your supply coming from one place. For example, we saw in the Far East the you know results of flooding on certain industries. Um, we've seen companies who have had uh, multiple suppliers, thinking they had some uh, you know diversification rather than sole sourcing, and they were all from the same geographic region. So there are certain steps that are you know obvious that we can take for things like natural catastrophes that that will potentially happen on a more frequent basis going forward, uh, or you know geopolitical risk. Um, Zurich has a uh, a tool that's out there in the public domain it's uh, free and publicly available um, called the Zurich Risk Room that is an, actually an offshoot that we developed together with the World Economic Forum. Um, you can go on uh, on the um, Apple Store or Google Play if you have an Android and take a look at that Zurich Risk Room tool that really breaks down some of these global risks by country. Uh, so if you're thinking of you know sourcing from a certain country, well let's take a look and see what geopolitical, environmental, um, societal issues might be confronting you from having a supplier there uh, and consider that in your decision-making process and maybe having a backup. But to your question about specific versus general risks, um, once you've taken care of some of the obvious risk-specific risks that will happen, we also think that it's important to do a deeper dive analysis on a supplier-by-supplier basis. Uh, And so Zurich has developed a risk assessment that we use ourselves um, that goes into 25 areas of risk uh you know including some management corporate social responsibility location uh etc around each supplier that helps us say well we don't want to just make a decision solely based on the cost of working with that vendor we want to have a uh, also a reliability discussion uh and so doing some of that analysis business interruption modeling to say if we do go down with that supplier, where are our backups and plotting them out on kind of a geographic map is something that that we recommend and we do ourselves. Uh, And finally, as you can imagine, as an insurance company, we do offer a supply chain insurance that you can actually name certain suppliers in the policy and then cover it for whatever happens because, frankly, who could predict some of the things that happened, like a volcano that we know disrupted supply chains significantly a few years back. Um, So kind of taking that broad brush approach in some of your insurance cover is one thing we also recommend. So it's kind of a blended approach. Well,
0: this is a really valuable report that you've put out, very sweeping in terms of all the possible risks that might affect supply chains today. Linda Conrad, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about it, I will be linking to that report in the show notes, and I hope to the Zurich Risk Assessment uh, tool as well. But thanks again for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for bringing up this important topic. That was my
0: conversation with Linda Conrad of Zurich Insurance Group, talking about the biggest geopolitical, economic, and societal risks that the world faces today. at SupplyChainBrain.com. See you next time.